Chapter 4 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 4 Typhoon Reaches Cows with 37 Hours to Spare. Aboard Typhoon, Bay of Biscay, September 10, 1920. We're halfway across the Bay of Biscay, headed for the point of the Spanish Peninsula. We took our departure from Ushant night before last, and should reach Cape Ortegal tomorrow evening if the easterly wind holds out. It's a crisp, sunny day and hardly conducive to riding, but we must catch up with the yarn, and it is next to impossible to do anything while Typhoon is in port. The last chapter told of the hurried departure of the little ketch from Baddock soon after midnight, July 18th. Her run under motor power out the big broad door passage, the discouraging experience in the calm, and finally the gale off the coast of Newfoundland, and the decision to keep on for England, in spite of the fact that there seemed scarcely one chance in a hundred of reaching the Isle of Wight in time for the British international races. The close of the chapter saw us about ten miles off Cape Race, from which we took our departure at noon on July 22nd. For just a few minutes we could see the land, a distant gray silhouette, and as it was lost in the haze over the port quarter, we made out a steamer of some sort making directly for us from the same direction. My first thought was that kind friends, feeling concern at our failure to put in at Saint-Pierre, as we had expected to do, had put a Coast Guard boat on our trail, or possibly the U.S. Navy delegation had descended on Baddock to see the HD-4 and Baldwin was needed. On she came, and I had that same uncertain feeling you get when the traffic cop at the City Island Crossroads stops you, and you don't know whether he merely wants a ride into town, or you're pinched for the third and last time for exceeding the speed limit. However, our friend proved to be only the steam trawler Afrique, overcome by curiosity. Steaming completely around us, he sized us up at close range, and from the way all hands and the cook talked vociferously with both arms, and from the general sloppiness of the ship, we judged she was one of those French trawlers that have largely taken the place of the Saint-Pierre schooners since the Newfoundland bait legislation was enacted. Waving us farewell, she steamed back again in the direction from which she had come. There's something delightfully amateurish about a Frenchman on the water. The first two hours of the actual transatlantic part of the cruise were anything but exciting. A light southwest breeze over the quarter gave us about three knots, then, at Casey's suggestion, we set the spinnaker, and by four o'clock we were doing six and a half. From then on, things improved, and by five o'clock the wind was sufficient to warrant taking in the spinnaker. At midnight, we were tearing it off at the rate of eight and a half knots under full sail, too glad to be driving her again to think of shortening down, as we might have done had we not been pushed by the calendar. Friday, July 23rd, was a fine sunny day about the only one we had, in fact, until we reached the English Channel. At noon, the log showed that we had covered 142.35 sea miles since 12 o'clock of the previous day, a fairly good day's run. But in the afternoon, we had to resort to the spinnaker again, and for three hours from four to seven, slatted about with practically no wind at all. Had we known that it was to be the last experience of the kind we were to have for some time, we might have taken it a bit more stoically. At this time, Dorset was beginning to feel better, and we decided to divide the nights into three watches of three hours each. Although never quite right until we hit the channel, and not able to do any work below, 
Jim never missed a trick at the wheel, and in fact made up for his shortcomings below decks by doing more than his share of the steering. And steering from then on was a job that demanded boots and oilies and woolen gloves and the heaviest of clothing, for we were running a rough great circle track close to the 50th parallel, and the North Atlantic in that latitude is far different from Long Island Sound. Saturday the 24th was more typical of the sort of thing we were to get. I awoke about six o'clock to find Casey in dripping oilskins from a foggy third watch, wrestling with the shipmate range while Typhoon sailed herself. Having allowed the fire to go out, he was relighting it for the third time with no great success. Casey in the galley always suggested Briggs' classic series of cartoons entitled A Handy Man Around the House, but all his domestic shortcomings are excusable in the light of his expert seamanship and his cool judgment and iron nerve that were the despair of those who faced him on the gridiron, and his never-failing humor, all of which make him the best man on the water that I have ever known. We breakfasted leisurely on prunes, ham and eggs, and coffee, while the ship kept her course with the wind one point abaft the beam, a rather unusual performance, as anybody who has sailed, with the possible exception of old Joshua Slocum, will appreciate. Later in the day, when the wind hauled from south by west to southwest, bringing it four points abaft the beam, she kept her course long enough for the man at the wheel to go below for a smoke or a mug-up, but we found that this was possible only when the wind was absolutely steady. Close-hauled, or when running before it under jib alone, she would sail herself for days if necessary. Conditions were unfavorable for a noon sight for latitude, but by this time we were pretty sure of the deviation of our compass on the easterly headings and felt that we were not far off our great circle course. The lack of a longitude observation didn't matter either, for our bliss log, while set to overrun a trifle, gave us a fair idea of our position. At noon it registered 588.25 miles, showing that we had made 109.25 nautical miles for the day, a rather poor showing due to the lack of wind the previous afternoon. It was the poorest showing of our record week, but the barograph curve was slumping, and increasing wind and rain indicated that our run for the next 24 hours would be better. From noon on, we managed to spell well over seven knots, and by six o'clock were tearing it off at nearly eight and a half knots, which I think is close to Typhoon's limit. She was staggering a bit under full sail, and feeling that she would be more comfortable for the night without any material loss of speed, we tucked two reefs in the mainsail. Thus shortened down, she maintained a speed between seven and eight knots throughout the night. By 10 the next morning, July 25th, the seas had grown to a tremendous size, but the wind had dropped enough to warrant shaking out the reefs, which brought our speed up again to a full eight knots. At 12, the log registered 760 miles, indicating a day's run of 171.4 miles, and we set our clocks ahead an hour to 45th meridian time. We were well beyond the limit of the Grand Banks, in the neighborhood of Flemish Cap, but the weather was still thick. In fact, we might have been on the banks all the way across, so far as the weather was concerned. Where time is less of a consideration than comfort, I would suggest crossing the Atlantic via the Azores, as Skipper Tom Day advised us to do, rather than by the northern route. But with us, the one important thing was to reach cows in time for the races. In the afternoon, the wind increased again, necessitating a double reef in the mainsail, and at midnight it was blowing so hard that we were forced to take in the sail entirely and run under the jib and mizzen. 
We were all beginning to feel the lack of sleep, and two hours at the wheel was about all we could stand without actually falling asleep, and even then the second hour was a series of catnaps ending with a start just in time to keep the boat from jibing or luffing up into the wind. Steering becomes so automatic that it is possible to sleep and still carry on until the shifting of the wind on your face or the changing motion of the boat breaks the monotony and brings you back to consciousness with a jerk. This groggy condition we experienced during that first hard week out from Cape Race was due largely to the fact that it was difficult to get adequate rest below when off watch. Casey and I had the two bunks on the starboard side, and as we were practically continuously on the starboard tack, these bunks were on the weather side, and the motion of the boat made it almost impossible to stay put in them. They are spring bunks and rather broad to accommodate the regular navy springs, and it is not easy to wedge yourself into them. In spite of the bunk board, Casey used occasionally to fall out of his in his sleeping bag and fetch up in the galley on the lee side. I used to make a trough of the mattress and a duffel bag and tie my arm to one of the rods about the bunk with a bath towel, but even then it was impossible to keep from rolling about like jelly on a plate without constant exertion that was quite detrimental to proper rest. Jim had no trouble on the lee side, and in fact seemed so comfortable that I shifted to the unoccupied pipe berth on that side, and have been there ever since. Spring bunks may be perfectly comfortable in a quiet anchorage, but I don't think I shall ever have one on a boat again. A pipe frame with a canvas bottom loosely laced so as to sag somewhat, and with a thin cot or hammock mattress, is to my mind the most comfortable type of bed for a boat. In the daytime it is folded up against the sheathing with the bedding in it, taking up no valuable room, and when in use it may be topped up at any angle to keep you from rolling out. The secret of the comfort of this sort of berth is that it sags and adapts itself to the irregularities of your person, supporting your weight uniformly instead of only at the bumps. If you must have spring bunks in a boat for ocean cruising, make them with high bunk boards and narrow enough to enable you to wedge yourself in with your knees. The log of the typhoon is a decidedly sketchy document. Like our navigation, it shows a lack of system that would shock a through-going mariner, but it tells the story briefly, and a few pages from it will help to keep this narrative from becoming tiresomely long. Monday, July 26th. Cloudy but no fog. Wind strong west-southwest. All feeling the lack of sleep. High seas running and almost impossible to stay in bunks when we get an opportunity. 3.30 a.m. Doused mizzen and let her take care of herself under jib alone. Motion considerably less and all had a good sleep. 7.30 a.m. Turned out and spent most of morning rigging up the rotary bilge pump and pumping bilge which had begun to slop around again. Raised mainsail without mizzen, which seems to be a good arrangement for running before it. 12 noon. Log 910 miles. Days run 150 miles for 23 hours. Maintained almost constant seven knots all afternoon under double-reefed mainsail and jib. 10.30 p.m. Main boom traveler carried away. Doused mainsail with some difficulty, secured boom in crutch, and let her sail herself under jib while we all slept. Tuesday, July 27th. Thick except for a while in the morning. 4 a.m. Wind heavy west by south, course east-southeast, maintained without touching steering wheel. Log 995 miles. 6 a.m. Log 1001.5 miles. Casey improvises a strop of wire and rope to replace main boom traveler, 
while WWN cleans up below decks. Set mainsail. 12 noon, log 1,030.4 miles, day's run 120.4 miles. Took noon sight, really the first good one, although the horizon was obscured by fog. Latitude 49 degrees 8 minutes, just about what we wanted and quite good considering frequent changes of course. If longitude from log is anywhere near correct, we are nearly halfway across. 4 p.m., log 1057.6 miles. 5.30 p.m., a large school of porpoises played about us for half an hour or so, almost touching the ship and jumping clear of the heavy seas. They seem to travel in groups of two or three and show no fear of the boat. Wednesday, July 28th. Fog still holds. Wind heavy west by south. Barograph high, but starting to dip slightly. 2 a.m., log 1,121.5 miles. 4.30 a.m., set mizzen. 8 a.m., log 1,162.5 miles. 12 noon, log 1,192.3 miles. Days run 161.9 miles. Fog too thick for latitude sight. Wednesday was the sixth day out from Cape Race, and it was on this day that we got our first time sight for longitude. It was blowing hard, and we were bowling along before at a top speed under jib, mizzen, and double-reefed mainsail, when early in the afternoon the fog thinned sufficiently to give us a glimpse of the sun. Casey took advantage of the opportunity and rushed for the sextant, and I stood by the chronometer while he brought the sun down to the very fuzzy horizon. Ignoring all of our profound volumes on navigation, and armed solely with Henderson's little manual, we worked out the site together and found, after several errors, and much to our astonishment, that we were actually but a few miles from our position by dead reckoning. I say much to our astonishment, for you are bound to be surprised the first time you work up a site and find that you actually are just about where you ought to be. Neither of us had ever done any serious navigation before. Casey had played a bit with his sextant and had gained some acquaintance with the various methods of obtaining longitude by a casual reading of several textbooks. I had written an article on the 8948 method of obtaining latitude. But until we were in mid-Atlantic, neither one of us ever had had occasion to work up a time site with a real live chronometer. It's a damaging admission, but it goes to prove that navigation is really not the formidable thing that we are likely to consider it. But, dear reader, do as I say and not as I do in these matters, and don't start across the Atlantic unless you are sure both you and your boat are ready. I wouldn't for the world give the impression of flippancy in my attitude toward ocean cruising. What cruising of this kind I have done has instilled in me a profound respect for the sea. She detests cowardice and is a friend to those who know and respect her, but on the other hand, she is likely to chasten flippancy or overfamiliarity with pitiless severity. With two reefs in the mainsail, we averaged 8.19 knots throughout the entire afternoon and drove her through the night under the same canvas, too elated over the progress we were making to think of easing down a bit. Typhoon fairly flew, and the next morning for one hour between 10 and 11, the log showed that she actually made a full nine knots, the best she has ever done. This was Thursday, July 29th, the seventh day from Cape Race and the twelfth from Baddock. It was foggy as usual, with rain, but nothing mattered so long as the wind held. At eight in the morning, Jim, who was at the wheel, sighted a full-rigged ship on our starboard bow, bound up probably to some Norwegian port. 
She was the first vessel we had seen in a week, and she made a bully picture tearing along with all her kites pulling. At noon, our log showed that we had covered 183.4 nautical miles for the day, the best run for the entire passage, and this brought our mileage for the week up to 1,038.7, which I think we are safe in saying is a record week's run for a boat of this size and type. Our average day's run for the week was 148.39 miles, and our average speed was 6.18 knots. Those hollow water lines of Billy Atkins and that broad run aren't such bad features after all if seaworthiness and speed are the qualities upon which the success of a boat depends. Just by way of contrast, and to take us down a peg, the next day proved to be the worst since that exasperating one after leaving the Broadoor Lakes. In fact, save for that one exception, it was the worst of the entire run to cows. At about 8 o'clock Thursday, the wind hauled around to the north, and from then on gradually diminished. It was during my watch, and as the wind was now on the port beam, I trimmed her to sail herself, hung up a lantern, and went below and joined the others in a good old snooze. We needed it. By 2 in the morning, the wind had died entirely, and we took in the mainsail and jib to prevent slatting. Occasionally throughout the day we got a bit of wind from one quarter or another, but our progress was slow. It rained continuously, and we spent the day below on such jobs as the sea anchor, which had never been finished, straightening out the gear and working up longitude sights. Our position was slightly below the 50th parallel in longitude 28 degrees 21 minutes west. But the wind was hauling around to the northwest with a rising glass, and that night we were treated to a change from our almost steady diet of thick weather. A glorious sunset and later a full moon with patches of clean, high wind clouds spoke well for the following day, and another good sleep, while Typhoon sailed herself, made up for what we had lost during the hard week. The second week out from Cape Race was less strenuous than the first had been. On the whole, the wind was good, and we kept on driving her, but things had become more systematized, and, hardened up as we were, we felt none of the fatigue that we had experienced in the earlier days. When the weather permitted, we took a daily noon sight for latitude and a morning and afternoon sight for longitude, for we could not afford to waste time on a poor landfall. Queenstown and the Royal Cork Yacht Club were out of the question, and instead of heading for Cape Clear at the southern point of Ireland, which would have shortened the transatlantic run by a full 24 hours, we shaped our course for Bishop's Rock in the Scilly Islands off the point of Cornwall. As we drew down to the traffic lanes, we sighted more ships, which are always a welcome break in the monotony of ocean sailing. It happened that most of these meetings were at night, and several rather close calls woke us up to the realization that we had better start again to use our running lights, for which there was little need in mid-Atlantic, north of the steamer lanes as we were. In thick weather, even if not actually foggy, there isn't much warning of an approaching vessel. If she is going in the opposite direction, she may loom up suddenly, pass you, and be lost astern in five minutes, and a lighted lantern or a flare ready at hand in the cockpit never should be neglected. As we drew nearer to the shipping, we never failed to have someone at the wheel except in clear weather. One night we sighted two vessels bearing down on us from opposite directions. It was hazy, and they were close aboard before we saw them, the masthead range lights of each almost in line. The situation demanded a bit of quick maneuvering and much waving of our lantern. It impressed upon us the necessity of a constant lookout. 
As the second week drew on, our chances of reaching cows improved with each good day's run. On the afternoon of August 4th, our longitude site gave us 13 degrees 45 minutes west, or about 275 miles west of Bishop's Rock, which meant that, by averaging a little over 100 miles a day for the five remaining days, we could make it. The wind was holding up in great style. That day it was from the northwest, and at noon our log registered 174 miles for the past 24 hours. At five in the afternoon we lowered the mainsail to replace the lacing in the head, which had carried away, and incidentally to tie in a double reef, and during the operation we had a bit of excitement. Intent on our work, we allowed the mizzen to jibe, which carried away the starboard shrouds at the mast and nearly cost us our stick. We luffed and lowered away just in time to keep it from going overboard, for it was blowing half a gale. The cause of the accident was the slipping of the seizing at the eye of the shrouds, which were made in one continuous piece. That is, the forward and after shrouds on either side of the mizzen are in one length of wire rope, seized to form an eye to go over the masthead. This seizing was put on wire to wire and consequently slipped down, enlarging the eye and placing all the strain on the oak cleat, which, although set into the mast, carried away under the strain. Clearing up the tangle of shrouds and lifelines, we snugged the mizzen boom and the crutch for the night, and when we reached the channel, rigged up a jury shroud with a forestay we had put on the mizzen for just such an emergency, and this allowed us to carry our sail to cows. On Friday, August 6th, we made our landfall. Our morning longitude site put us 60 miles west of Bishop's Rock in longitude 8 degrees, 2 minutes, 17 seconds west, and our noon site for latitude gave us 49 degrees, 40 minutes, 50 seconds, which meant that we ought to pick up the light early in the evening, unless our chronometer had changed its rate. At 9 a.m., the Lapland passed us close aboard, outward bound, and apparently on a course parallel to our own. Could it be that we were exactly right in our navigation, and that she had come out of the English Channel? Or was she bound out from Liverpool and the Irish Channel? We hoped mightily that the latter was not true, although we were under the impression that this particular vessel docked at Liverpool. However, we dipped our ensign to her, she did the same, and we went our way trusting that our latitude was correct. Our afternoon longitude site put us almost on the meridian of Bishop's Rock, but night came on without picking it up. And then at 9.25, just as we were beginning to fear that the drubbing had been too much for the little Waltham, we caught the glow of the light, still down below the horizon. It was just where it should have been, about three points off the port bow, and again we were very much surprised and not a little elated. Our transatlantic run had been made in 15 days, 9 hours, and 25 minutes from Cape Race, and we know of no other small craft that has done it in better time. Our first day in the English Channel will always be a crisp picture of my memory when other parts of the cruise have become blurred by time. It was clear and sunny, unusually so for England, and as we reached along to a southerly breeze within sight of the Cornish coast, we passed all sorts of interesting ships and small craft, some bound up or down the channel, and some trawling or lying to drift nets. We passed a whole fleet of steam drifters, each with her mizzen set, and a number of large yawls with the characteristic red sails. Bully sailors they are, too, as we found out when we had a brush with one later on. She beat us, but the sting of defeat was eased somewhat by the fact that she was twice our size. 
Navigating the English Channel is simplified by the chain of wonderful lights along the south coast of England, the Lizard, Eddystone, Start Point, Portland Bill, and the rest. It is so simple that I can understand why some of the skippers of our shipping board fleet, locally known as the tissue paper fleet, are the laughing stock of the Limeys for their habit of taking on pilots at Land's End. A pilot from Land's End to Dover gets the equivalent of about $1,000, I am told, and our new-laid skippers are supporting a large and ever-growing element of the English population. No unusual incident marked our run up the English Channel. Due to the effect of a head tide, we mistook the Bill of Portland, faintly visible, for the Isle of Wight, and put in and were caught in the notorious race, which we had been warned particularly to avoid, but suffered nothing more than a few hours' delay. We were running before a good breeze at the time, with a spinnaker set. We must have been doing six knots through the water, but we were scarcely able to make any actual progress against the current. But other than a moderate tide rip, we saw nothing of the dreaded overfall in which so many ships have foundered. We carried the spinnaker until we were within a few miles of the needles, which marked the entrance to the Solent. There could be no doubt of St. Catherine's light, but the needle's light bothered us. Our light list gave the characteristics of the light as a 20-second cycle with light 2 seconds, eclipse 2 seconds, light 2 seconds, eclipse 14 seconds, whereas our count was light 2 seconds, eclipse 2 seconds, light 14 seconds, eclipse 2 seconds, which is exactly the reverse. However, we made for it, and shortly after passing St. Alban's head, I went below for an hour's sleep. When I came on deck again, we were right in the middle of a constellation of blinking lights, with rocks close aboard on the starboard side. I wouldn't have given much for our chances of getting through the channel, which is such a difficult one that large vessels usually go out spithead at the other end of the Solent, rather than risk it even in daylight. I said so, and Casey grinned. But Casey hadn't been asleep, and before I had waked up sufficiently to know just where we were, we had shot into the Solent and were sailing in quiet water for the first time in twenty-two days. It was a strange, depressing sort of feeling. The tide was with us now, and we covered the fifteen miles to Cowes in an hour and a half in spite of the light breeze. Luffing up off the Royal Yacht Squadron near what seemed to be the King's Yacht, we dropped the hook alongside a CMB and a converted ML at 3 a.m., having covered the logged distance of 2,777 nautical miles from Baddock in 22 days, 1 hour, and 20 minutes. It had been a glorious fight without a single let-up, and as we stood there on deck, the three of us, in the faint light before dawn, we felt the glow of pride that comes only from a task well done. We had accomplished, Typhoon and her crew, what had seemed to be an impossible thing. We had reached cows with a day and a half to spare. And then, as the quaint town and the interesting craft about us changed from mysterious silhouettes to living things with form and color, we went below and slept as we had never slept before. End of chapter 4